right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Afternoons on News Talk 770. Again, 974-8255 is our telephone number. We'll have more time for your calls later in this hour. Text us as well, 770-770. Let's get into a conversation in this hour about uh, pipelines, in particular Energy East, which is a a Canadian pipeline project uh, to go from uh, one part of Canada to another. Obviously, I think we're still a little bit stung by it, by the rejection of Keystone XL and the way that that debate played out in the United States. But ultimately, crossing an international border, uh, the U.S. was going to have a say, and, and they did. And it was a no to Keystone XL. Energy East is or should be different. Again, it's a, a Canadian project to get Canadian oil from one part of the country to another. To get oil from landlocked Alberta to the coast uh, so it can be exported. Uh, But this is uh, now apparently becoming an international issue. Uh, One of the same groups responsible for uh, helping to derail Keystone XL has now launched a campaign to target the proposed Energy East pipeline. But whereas the arguments against Keystone XL were around CO2 emissions and the development of the oil sands, uh, this campaign around Energy East uh, seems more aimed at tanker traffic and an argument that building Energy East to the East Coast will result in more tanker traffic to the United States. Joining us to uh, discuss and debate the merits uh, of Energy East and Canadian oil exports, we welcome to the program here today Anthony Swift, who is director of the Canada Project, the international program with NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Anthony, good afternoon. It's great to be on the show. Thank you. And joining us in studio is Cody Battershill, oil sands advocate, founder of Canada Action. Cody, thanks for coming in here today. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Uh, Anthony, let's start with you then. Uh, Why is uh, a U.S.-based group targeting this Canadian pipeline project? Well, one of the dynamics at play here, and I I think it's something we've seen with many energy infrastructure projects in Canada and the U.S., is that our crude oil infrastructure is really quite integrated. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned that Energy East gets uh, oil sands to New Brunswick, but once it gets to New Brunswick, it goes somewhere. And uh, uh, the location that is the target for, mo- for much of, uh, you know, heavy crude in the, in, the, in the world is the U.S. Gulf Coast. It actually, the U.S. Gulf Coast has the largest assemblage of uh, heavy crude refining uh, uh, or heavy crude refineries in the world. And what that means is that uh, you know, Energy East is going to be connected to a dramatic increase in in tankers moving uh, oil sands through the bitumen over U.S. waters. And one of our concerns is that the environmental impact of that part of the proposal isn't currently being uh, considered in the overall environmental review process for Energy East, though those impacts will certainly occur should Energy East move forward. And this is of uh, particular uh, concern given what we've learned about the behavior of diluted bitumen, wind spilled in a water body, and uh, the lack of adequate tools to contain and clean uh, a diluted bitumen spill. Six years ago uh, this week, an Enbridge spill in Kalamazoo, Michigan, resulted in over a million gallons of uh, diluted bitumen 
flowing into the Kalamazoo River, that spill was certainly not the largest pipeline spill in U.S. history, but was by far the most expensive, costing over $1.2 billion. And the reason for that was uh, the diluted bitumen behaved differently. It, you had a much larger uh, percentage of it sink into the water column and evade containment devices. In the U.S., the National Academy of Sciences has you know, just earlier this year, concluded a, a uh, exhaustive review of uh, the science of, spill, of, of diluted bitumen behavior and our, our spill response mechanisms to address it. And it concluded that diluted bitumen really is a different animal that our regulators and spill responders don't have the tools to address in a worst-case scenario. All right, uh, let's get Cody in, into the conversation here. Cody, what, what do you make of this argument then that the Canadian oil exports should be treated differently? All the oil that, that's uh, shipped into the United States, uh, that that's fine, but yet Canadian oil should be treated differently. Yeah, I find it quite concerning for, um, for Canada to be singled out. There's a, a recent study that was done by the government of Canada that said that you know, diluted bitumen doesn't sink as readily as conventional oil when spilled in fresh water. And um, the science certainly is not settled. You know, these old studies and these older um, uh, spill examples, you know, pipelines have a safety record of 99.999%. Every day the U.S. is importing about 2 million barrels of heavy oil, similar to Canadian heavy oil, into the Gulf Coast. And groups like the NRDC... Um, have never I, I've never seen them oppose a, a tanker from Venezuela or, uh, or or oil exports from these other countries that would have weaker uh, carbon regulations and weaker uh, uh, environmental regulations. So I find it concerning again that you know while the NRDC was opposing Keystone, the USA built about ten times that length of of their own pipeline, increased their own oil production four or five times what we did, and now the NRDC needs. A new target, I guess, and they, they're not going to start opposing Saudi pipelines or OPEC pipelines or oil uh, in oil tankers from from other countries. They're they're squarely fixated on Canada, and uh, I think as Canadians, we have to say, you know, is this process a Canadian process, and is this a, a sovereign issue that we should be uh, deciding upon to displace some of the American oil we're importing, the Saudi oil we're importing, and again, why have these? Uh, you know these these people are employees, so they're they're paying their bills and they're working for these these protests and these lobby groups. Why have they never opposed these other sources of of oil that have weaker environmental regulations? If yeah. it's really about the environment, well, Anthony, why is that? Well, it's not actually true. Uh, and I mean, looking at Energy East, I think an uh, instructive example is looking at offshore drilling off the Atlantic. Uh, you know, NRDC has opposed expanding. Uh, drilling in many of the same areas that the uh, tankers from Energy East would travel, and the administration has actually uh, imposed a moratorium on expanding uh, offshore oil in the Atlantic, and we're seeing similar strides in the Arctic. I think one of the things to realize after Paris is, in addition to considering the local environmental impacts, we we do need to think about where we're going as an international community. And I, I do agree that in addition to evaluating 
what long-term infrastructure we, we build in, we, we also need to be focusing on demand-side solutions, alternatives, and we're doing that as well. And, and you know, I think a little-known fact is that uh, oil consumption in the U.S. is down by over 2 million barrels a day over recent years, and that trend is expected to continue as we improve on CAFE standards and begin to uh, – commercialize electric vehicles, smart growth, and, and other uh, carbon-reducing uh, policies. So I, I would just jump in and say, you know, if it's if it's about carbon-reducing policies, Canada's been a leader. Uh, Canada's the only top supplier of oil to the United States with carbon regulations. We've had carbon regulations since uh, 2008. Our, our local uh, uh, provincial government just strengthened those regulations. Obama was recently in the parliament and applauded uh, Canada's action. And while oil consumption in the OECD countries may be flat, flatlining or slightly declining, global oil consumption is up. We're going to be up about 4 million barrels around the world, 2015, 2016, and forecasted for 2017, reaching about 100 million barrels a day. So every barrel of oil that does not come from Canada, if you do look at the global environment, if the climate's global, if we're, we're talking about global macro uh, issues, every barrel that does not come from Canada is going to be replaced from another country, countries that the NRDC and other lobby groups are not opposing. The social justice and, and sort of local implications for Canadians is that we have you know, people that are unemployed. We, we're, we're, we're paying more for foreign oil from the U.S., uh, we're paying more for oil from countries like Saudi Arabia. And uh, a lot of this oil is not uh, produced to the same standard as uh, Canadian oil from an environmental standpoint. You, you know, do you mind if I... Uh... Well, but I mean, it's, yeah, address the question because it's, it seems though Canada's far ahead of certainly the United States and other countries that the United States imports oil from when it comes to uh, addressing emissions, putting a price on carbon. Well, you know, one of the, when Alberta announced its climate plan, we certainly lauded it. Um, I think that uh, w- one of the challenges that we're all going to have to face as we work to decarbonize as an international community is beginning to plan our, our economies, our growth in engines, in a manner that's consistent with the two degrees Celsius world that we've committed to. And in that uh, scenario, there's really no credible route for us to limit warming to two degrees Celsius, and certainly not 1.5 degrees Celsius, which you know both the U.S. and Canada have committed to, uh, without a peak in global oil demand in the next few years and a decline, uh, and that has a, a large impact on our expectations of growth for certain industries. In, in the U.S., we're we're really tackling our carbon problem, which is our coal, our coal sector. And that's what the Clean Power Plan has really been all about. Okay, but okay, hang on. But come back to this point, Cody, that, that you made, and, and Anthony, you can address it, because it, it seems that even with Keystone XL scuttled, or even if we were to scuttle Energy East or any other pipeline project, that's not going to have any kind of measurable impact on, on oil consumption in the U.S. It's just going to come from somewhere else. It just comes from somewhere else. I mean, if we're talking again about supporting countries that have shown leadership. Canada is seventh in the world for installed wind power capacity. We're a top producer of renewable energy. We're also a top investor. We invested more than the country of India in 2013 and 2014, according to Bloomberg. So if we're talking about celebrating and uh, celebrating environmental leadership, we celebrate Canada. If we're talking about having realistic conversations that are grounded in reality about energy consumption, we 
are talking about global oil demand increasing, as is demand for all energy, and we have to decide where that's going to come from. You know, there is uh, there's much to be praised in, in the you know government in Alberta and uh, uh, federally. I think one of the challenges is going to be how uh, can the nation move forward in a manner that meets its uh, current targets. Uh, for climate reductions and goes beyond that uh, in in future years. I think that one of the big debates that's happening uh, on both sides of the border and certainly within Canada is is one in which uh, folks are considering how Canada can meet its uh, international commitments while expanding uh, high-carbon fuel production. Well, are we and expanding I, or is this just about how we move it? I think this is definitely about expansion. Uh, the current uh, pipeline uh, system has more than enough capacity to uh, ship all of the production that's currently happening in northern Alberta and projects that are in construction. And those projects, that, that uh, infrastructure is uh, directed toward uh, heavy crude refining capacity. So both expansion projects at this stage or new pipeline projects at this stage are really about providing the space for new projects to move forward and the thing about that is that you know for a new oil sands project uh, once it's green lighted it can take three to five years to build and then produce for 40 to 50 years so these are decisions not about the energy we need now, five years from now, even ten years from now. This is, these projects are about what energy sources we're locking ourselves into uh, through 2060, 2070. Okay. And that has implications for the climate, and it also has implications for Canada's economy, should it make investments in uh, high-carbon energy sources for which the global market begins to soften in coming years. All right, Anthony, stand by. Cody, stand by. We're going to take a break, and, and we'll uh, we'll pick up on that point here. Cody Battershill's in studio with us, founder of Canada Action. Also, Anthony Swift, uh, Swift on the line with us. He's with the Natural Resources Defense Council, talking about Energy East uh, and this uh, coalition of environmental groups today, including some from the U.S., coming out against that project. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. A conversation about uh, Canadian oil, Canadian oil experts. Uh, obviously, uh, we've been debating and discussing in this country Energy East uh, and a way of getting uh, our oil to coast, moving that oil uh, in a modern and, and safe way, and, and exporting that oil as well. Uh, the Natural Resources, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, among some U.S. groups, uh, trying to block that pipeline, put a ban on Canadian tanker traffic. Uh, Anthony Swift is on the line with us uh, from the NRDC. We've also got Cody Battershill uh, in studio with us, oil sands advocate, founder of Canada Action. Uh, let me go to, to you here, Cody, and just to address the point, we seem to be getting away from the, the, the question we tried to ask here about Canada as a responsible oil producer, and if not from Canada, then from where? And here we are having a conversation about how we're going to move this product, and it seems as though these groups are trying to make it about something else. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, it's always a shifting uh, target so if we look again at, at Alberta's climate leadership plan and our, our greenhouse gas emissions regulations, you know, the chair of that panel, Andrew Leach, has said, until the whole world imposes similar regulations and cost, you're not simply reducing emissions, you're displacing emissions and economic activity to other jurisdictions. That's really uh, uh, an important point we need to be talking about. If we're talking about the economy, 
there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadian families right now that cannot put food on the table because our uh, energy industry and our resource industries are down right now. And a big reason and, and a big contributing factor to that is, is over the last number of years, we have one customer for our oil and our natural gas. And so while we have delayed and not built LNG projects, the U.S. is exporting LNG all over the world. And while Keystone XL and other Canadian oil pipeline projects have been delayed, the USA, uh, which is our number one customer, and now you could call it our number one competitor, has built almost 10,000 miles of pipelines. And they're now exporting oil to Europe, to Asia, and all over the world. Canada needs to get into the global game. You know, this is, we're talking about global free trade here. Um, you know, I'd also like to mention again that, you know, heavy oil is heavy oil. And if the NRDC is concerned about oil tankers, they can start protesting tankers today, sailing into the Gulf Coast and sailing into American and Canadian waters out east uh, off the Atlantic. They don't have to wait for Energy East to get built. They can do it now. I would say that there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, misinformation in, in a lot of what I see from the NRDC. I've seen them say that the tar sands is destroying the boreal forest. No context, no perspective, just just simply that statement. And when you actually look at it, it's 0.02% of Canada's brutal forest impacted by oil sands mining in the last 50 years. So I really want to bring this back to a point of balance and informed conversation. We have to continue to produce our resources in a balanced and environmentally conscious and progressive and innovative way. That does not mean that we shut down Canadian energy production and we instead give that market share to other less regulated countries. That's a net negative for the global environment. All right. Well, Anthony, I, let me put this question to you because uh, others have noted that, that there's a big NAFTA problem here. If you're going to ban Canadian tanker traffic because you've got American tankers going out, you've got American tankers coming into Canada. And for that matter, you've got tankers from a number of other countries still coming into these American ports. How can you just single out and ban Canadian tanker traffic? Well, we don't propose to ban Canadian tanker traffic. I think the, what we're calling for is a ban on shipping diluted bitumen in U.S. waters until uh, we have regulations and, and techniques capable of dealing with a spill. Uh, the issue here is that, you know, uh, years ago, following the uh, impact of the Kalamazoo uh, tar sand spill, uh, the National Academy of Sciences was um, instructed by our federal regulators to evaluate the behavior of diluted bitumen, compare it to conventional crude, and assess whether our regulations were sufficient to protect our our rivers, communities, and, and coastlines from uh, potential spills of, of diluted bitumen. And the National Academy of Sciences said that we're not prepared for a diluted bitumen spill. Now, this, this would not uh, affect shipments of other types of crude from Canada. Well, Cody, and come back to the point you made before, because uh, you mentioned that that uh, study done for the Canadian government just recently, and how maybe the lines are getting blurred here to, to suggest that um, Canadian oil, Canadian dilbit is is unique and different. Uh, the point you made about heavy oil is is heavy oil. Yeah, I mean, this study was funded by the Canadian government, done by Environment Canada, and it showed and diluted bitumen doesn't sink as readily as conventional oil when spilled in fresh water, upending previous assumptions. And this is directly from uh, from the Financial Post and from Bloomberg. So um, I think, again, you know, the message from the NRDC tends to be one that's very, uh, f- you know, honestly, just it tends to be very fear heavy. You know, what about a spill and what about this and what about that? And we're not looking at the whole picture. We're not looking at Canada's record of safety, Canada's record of innovation, Canada's record of progress, you know, how we build these pipelines. I mean, uh, you know, you look at Energy East, for example, there's about 170 municipalities that have that have 
signed official resolution supporting the project. You look at any Canadian pipeline, there's certainly always a balance to the number of First Nations that are supporting it and that are signing on to, to, to be a part of these projects relative to the one or two or, or the, you know, however many you see that are against these projects. The, the end of the day... Global oil demand is increasing, and if we're talking about transparency and carbon regulations, environmental uh, uh, monitoring and, and progress and innovation, if we're talking about social justice, human rights, equality, there's so many things that we could talk about, and we could go back and source Amnesty International and the United Nations and UNICEF and all these different global NGOs, but if you care about those things, you want to give more Canada to the world. You want more Canadian values, more Canadian energy. Well, and, and on that point, I know you, you got to run here, Anthony, but uh, what about that? that? That Canada should be the model for a responsible energy producer. Instead, it seems as though you're trying to create a, a void that's going to be filled by the likes of Venezuela, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia. I would say two things. I mean, first, on the issue of heavy crude, I should make the, the point that the National Academy of Sciences uh, engaged the researcher of the federal study you referred to, Heather Detman, in her in in their uh, study results, and they considered it in reaching their conclusions. So there isn't really a new study that that hasn't been considered by uh, uh, the Academy of Science. But I I would say that you know one of the there's a little question that the U.S. and Canada can work together and create uh, engines of economic growth that put people to work on clean energy jobs, on the transition to a clean energy economy. Uh, the reality is if we're going to stabilize global climate change, if we're going to stabilize warming at, at two degrees Celsius, then we're going to have to see some dramatic changes from business as usual, global oil. No, but, but, that, but that That's wasn't the question, though. That wasn't the question, though. It's where is that oil in the meantime going to come from? Well, it is the question because Energy East is a project that would be online, you know, in two to, to three years at uh, earliest, and it would spur projects that are 30 or 40-year timeline projects. So this really isn't about what, where we source our oil today. This is about where and how we source our energy for decades to come. So it's, it is actually a, a, an incredibly per pertinent question. Uh, and I, there is no question that there are opportunities for both the U.S. and Canada, Canadian economies to thrive in a global economy transitioning to cleaner fuels. If we don't, then we're admitting to uh, failure to address the rapidly warming climate and all of the catastrophic consequences associated with that. Okay. Anthony, we'll, we'll let you go. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thank you for having me all on right. the show. Anthony Thanks, Swift Anthony. with the NRDC. Uh, he's got to run. Cody, stand by. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll come back. Uh, we'll let you respond to, to what he had to say. We'll open the phone lines up here as well. 974-8255. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. Afternoons, News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. Still got uh, Cody Banishill in studio with us, founder of Canada Action. Uh, we had to uh, let Anthony go. He was uh, doing another interview here with the uh, NRDC. Um, so we'll get to some of your phone calls here, 974-8255. But uh, just to give you a chance uh, to, to follow up, Cody, just on, on what Anthony had said in his, his closing remarks and uh, and your, your thoughts on that debate. Yeah, thanks, Rob. You know, Anthony's talking a lot about uh, 
could 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 have should have might ha- might happen you know fut- future possibilities and if the NRDC is concerned with oil tankers they can start protesting oil tankers today coming into the Gulf Coast from countries with weaker environmental regulations um, also I would say you know if we're talking about the economy in Canada our pipelines and our oil sands and our LNG this investment is private investment this is not us as a country committing taxpayers to investments that in 50 or 60 or 70 years may not be uh, uh, still operating or still needed. I'll tell you this, as a Canadian, if the world's consuming 5 million barrels of oil in, tw- in 2100, I think 5 million barrels should come from Canada because we have the best regulations. We, 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 we look out for our social services. We look out for our economy, our families, our communities, and we have shown so, there's so many examples of leadership. Every time we do something... And these protest groups are supposed to say, oh, well, you did that for us now. They never stop opposing pipelines. They never stop. Well, yeah, well, that's what it seems like. Um, you know, but, but that point that you just made, and, and it was one that I, I think you skirted around several times, that, that even if the NRDC wants to make a case that we need to be using far less oil than we are right now, we need to significantly reduce our oil consumption, there is still going to be oil produced and consumed. And where is that oil going to come from? And it was the question that, that was posed, I, I think, to him in a, in a few different ways. Is, does it surprise you that he, he, he skirted it? He didn't really want to answer the question. When I look at the NRDC, I don't see them taking action against any other uh, pipelines or oil tanker exports or proposed exports from, from a lot of our competing countries, uh, a lot of our competitors around the world. You know, recently Saudi Arabia announced they were expanding their main pipeline from 5 million barrels a day to 7. And I don't see any outcry. I don't see any protest. I don't see anything on Twitter. I, I don't uh, think that the attack on Canada is warranted. I don't think it has uh, merit. I think that we need to have a balanced approach and we need to give Canada credit for what Canada's done, what we've done as Albertans and as Canadians. We've done a lot. We've really done a lot. And we deserve credit for that. We should have these pipelines built. If this was any other country, all these pipelines would already be operating. Right. Well, you know, and that's interesting because when we're talking about Energy East, we are talking about a Canadian pipeline, a Canadian project that does not cross any international borders. It's one thing to talk about Keystone XL and it's going into the United States. And so Americans are going to have a say in, in that project. And certainly the NRDC did. But, but this is, is at another level because this is a, a, a uniquely Canadian project. And it seems as though they're, they're very much inserting themselves in this Canadian debate. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, this is a question of Canadian sovereignty. And right now, the U.S. is our number one customer. Right now, the U.S. is exporting a lot of oil to Eastern Canada. Eastern Canada is also importing oil from other places. As a country, we're spending, I think we spent about $25 billion on foreign oil imports just a, just a few years ago. We're spending tens of billions of dollars. That's money that we could keep in our economy. Keep in our economy so that if you generate uh, economic growth in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in Manitoba, in British Columbia, all four Western provinces are are oil-producing jurisdictions. If we spend that money out West, and that helps us provide more equalization to other provinces, and that helps more people from across this country move to, to different places where there is work and there is economic opportunity, that's a net win for, for our families, for our economy. It's also a net win. Uh, it's a net positive for the global environment. All right. Well, let's take some phone calls here. 974-8255 is a telephone number. We'll start here with Harry. Harry, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. 
So, Rob, I think I can contribute a, a bit of a different perspective to the discussion. Okay. Uh, I, I spent several years as a tanker officer earlier in my career. Um, I was back in the days of single hulls and pump slops over the side. Mm -hmm. International law has changed so much in the last 40 years that uh, tankers are now double-hulled. The environmental standards for tankers are far higher than the environmental standards for rail cars. Um, the new standards for rail cars that are coming in are 40 years behind the time as far as ships are concerned. So talking, and that's the other way that we're going to move oil. I mean, let's face it. If there's not pipelines built, we're going to be putting it in rail cars. We're already putting it in rail cars. Yeah. It will eventually get to a port. Let's stop the argument about transportation of this. Pipelines are the safest way. Tankers are the second safest way. We're dumping rail cars every couple of weeks and causing problems. Nobody seems to be coming back at this whole discussion and saying, yeah, it's like it's oil's going to stop moving. No, we're going to put it in rail cars, and that's got, that's got more risk to it than any of the, any pipeline or ships that you're talking about. This is this is a crazy discussion when you come back to transportation. Yeah, well said, Harry. Appreciate the phone call. You know, and and to that, Cody, I think he's absolutely right. I, I think some are going to point to this this mess in in Saskatchewan right now, and I think Husky's got a lot to answer for for this this spill that's happened there. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that the preponderance of evidence is pretty clear about the track record of pipelines and how that is the safest way to transport oil. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the safety statistics speak for themselves. You look at our, our uh, Alberta Energy Regulator, our National Energy Board, the, the tens of thousands of pages that these projects go through in, app, in, 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 in applying the, the hundreds of, of open houses and town halls, the municipalities, the meetings, the, the amount of review is, is seemingly endless. And we do that in this country because we care about finding a reasonable, balanced middle ground. And, and we do find that in this country. Uh, we're, 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 you know, we, we should be proud of, of, of this country. We should be proud of Canada. Look at what we've done, compare it to other parts of the world. And we have to ask ourselves, and the NRDC needs to ask, why... You know, how can you say you care about climate change and, and greenhouse gas emissions and, and environmental regulations, yet you're only opposing the country that is the sole and, and easily declared leader in terms of progress and innovation to achieving those uh, those targets? Yeah, and, and the same that applies for pipelines applies to tankers as well. If we want to be uh, world leaders in tanker safety and we want to raise the ante, raise the bar even more in terms of what these, these tankers need to have. And that was part of the conversation around Northern Gateway, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. We'd have these double-hull tankers. Uh, we'd have the, the local pilots. We'd have the additional backups in place uh, that we were going far beyond what anyone else is doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, the, the regulations are there, and I find the message from the NRDC and the message from a lot of these, you know, extremely well-funded protest groups that seem to be solely focused on uh, Canadian pipelines and Canadian energy, I just find it lacking. I find it lacking in context. I find it lacking in perspective. I find it lacking in uh, a lot of really critical fact, you know, real, real balance. I mean, we need to have balanced conversations, and uh, that's how we're going to move forward. we got to move this thing forward for our families, for our economy, for our community. Let's go back to the phones. More time for your phone calls here. We've got uh, John on the line next. John, go ahead. Uh, Rob, I, yes, sir. what I see is it's the competition uh, working with the environmentalists that are blocking any progress that we have in ex exporting any of our uh, natural resources. Americans are funding 
uh, all kinds of protests to stop us from uh, doing anything with their oil. Hmm. All right, John, I appreciate the phone call. Cody, I mean, I don't know. You, you've you've been involved in, in following these groups uh, and, and where they're putting their money and what it is they're trying to do. But is there anything to suggest that, um, that they're trying to help the cause of, of American oil project? There's a lot of research that's been done by Vivian Krauss analyzing IRS tax returns. And what we do know for certain is that since about 2007 or 2008, there has been a sophisticated, coordinated, and extremely well-funded campaign that that includes all of these different groups. Right. You know, there's a, there's a few dozen groups. They they look independent, but they're funding their flow of people and resources, and their organization for their campaigns is all shared. Uh, think of it like an octopus. So this is called the Tar Sands campaign. They've a self-described network, yep. and Vivian Krauss has tracked hundreds of millions of dollars flowing from other places, especially the U.S. into Canada, both for conservation efforts that block future resource development, and for direct actions against uh, pipelines in the oil sands. It's a real, it's a real uh, a concern. You know, are we having conversations? Is the public, are we all seeing a balance and, and real fact? Or are we, are we being played by these special interests? These guys are, these, these people, um, there was a woman from the NRDC who was, who was very involved in that, that 2008 meeting. Um, you know, Anthony's working. Like the, this radio interview, he was, he was on the clock. You know, no. and uh, so we got to we got to talk about their motivations. We got to talk about the global context. Anthony didn't really want to address that today, and that was unfortunate. But every barrel that doesn't come from Canada comes from somewhere else. All right, can you stand by here, Cody? Absolutely. We'll take another break. We'll come back. More time for your phone calls as well. Here, four zero three nine seven four. Talk. It's afternoons on News Talk seven seventy. Welcome back. Afternoons on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our guest in studio is Cody Battershill, founder of Canada Action. CanadaAction.ca is the website. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Owen's on the line next. Owen, thanks for calling in. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. So I can tell you why they pick on Canada. Because Canada's wimps. We will not stand up to them. The Canadian government, the provincial governments will not stand up to the special interest groups at all. I mean, quite frankly, I've been down to the U.S. and seminars and all kinds of things and, and, to, and to see how they operate. And we would go to jail in Alberta for the garbage that they pull off in their oil and gas industry, in their water industry. I mean, they drill. We, we, we can drill to 149 meters in a proven area uh, for, you know, without a diverter. Down there, they're drilling through gas pockets, oil pockets, 350 meters, no diverters, no nothing. They are environmental cowboys. I mean, they're 50 years behind us. Why are we taking crap from these guys? We should just, we should just be telling them to get out of here. And I, I want to point out one thing that nobody keeps bringing up. Everybody keeps talking about, uh, you know, global trade and how great it is and, and oil tankers and, and all this People don't realize one oil tanker operating for a year, just one, produces more emissions than all the diesel vehicles in North America. <laughs> Those are the ones. They use heavily sulfured marine diesel. Those are the ones responsible for acid rain. It's not us. And that's Greenpeace and their damn ship. They're doing the same thing. They're polluting like crazy. Nobody says anything. Nobody takes these people to the top. Yeah. We need to stand up to these people. I don't even care. Kick them the hell out of this country. Okay, I want to appreciate the phone call. But, but it is the point he made about where Canada's at with its regulations, where the U.S. is at. And it was a point you, you tried to make with, with Anthony about where are you guys protesting 
uh, projects in the U.S., whether it be new oil projects, pipeline projects, et cetera. There, there's this disproportionate focus on Canada, which I think Owen's right in saying that Canada's uh, a lot further ahead than the U.S. Oh, absolutely. You know, if, if we look at, uh, um, you know, Canadian production, Canadian climate regulations, uh, our, our environmental regulations, you know, there's a survey done by Worley Parsons, a big engineering firm a few years ago. And uh, this survey compared apples to apples, you know, so it compared Alberta with Australia, with Brazil, with Ghana, with a bunch of other places where there's similar data points. And we came out at the absolute top of that survey for uh, transparency, for compliance uh, procedures, for uh, uh, monitoring and for, uh, you know, repercussions if something were to happen. So, you know, you look at the Alberta Energy Regulator in this province, it is a model of global energy regulation. Countries and delegations from all over the world come to Alberta to see how we do it. And, and, and there's many jurisdictions that have copied that. So again, um, you know, while, while Canada increased production by about a million barrels, the U.S. increased production by about five. And uh, Anthony and the NRDC, you know, they were, they were busy opposing future oil tankers, not dealing with the oil tankers that are sailing in today to the Gulf of, uh, to the, you know, to the Gulf Coast. Well, you know, and the other point is, I mean, without getting too political, I mean, the the, the Notley government has uh, it's certainly been controversial. Their their plan for for a carbon tax, uh, they're, they're hoping that that will win over some of the the critics of Alberta oil. And, and you heard on the one hand, Anthony say, "Well, we applauded the Notley government for for doing what they're doing, uh, but we still don't feel any any more positive about uh, about oil from Alberta." I mean it. It suggests that it's not going to be that easy. It's not simply a case of let's improve our environmental standards even more, and these groups like the NRDC are just going to roll over and say Albert is great. I would I would start by saying that you know Canada Action and our movement's nonpartisan because these conversations have nothing to do with politics. This is fact. This is this is keeping our families and keeping our our communities employed. The best possible social program you can have for someone is keep is a job is is opportunity to work. I would say this. Um, we have tried time and time and time again to work with some of these groups connected to this tar sands campaign. The tar sands campaign in 2008 was talking about Leonardo DiCaprio coming up and using him. He came in 2014. Everything against the oil sands, everything against these pipeline projects is according to a master plan. This isn't just fly by night. Uh, Vivian Krauss has, has done research and, and would tell you that the top seven or eight groups have over 200 employees and an annual budget that's 30 or $40 million. This is what we're up against. This is why every single individual, all of our voices matter. We can all spend five minutes a few times a week to, to, to join this conversation and to ask our government at all levels, municipal, provincial, and federal, let's stop trying to appease the people that are know everything that are unappeasable. They will never come to the table. You know, they stood on stage for the Alberta Climate Leadership Plan. And since then, most of those uh, protesters have gone right back to opposing Energy East and Kinder Morgan and Northern Gateway and Keystone XL and, and every Canadian pipeline project that exists. Well, let's get a couple more phone calls in in our time remaining here. Bill is on the line next. Bill, good afternoon. Rob, I, I just wanted to make the point that this is not about tankers and, and oil spills. And Keystone was never about the pipeline itself, Keystone XL. Mm -hmm. What it is about is the carbon bomb that they call the oil sands. They want to stop oil sands production. They want to stop it from increasing. And remember when the State Department gave their blessing to Keystone XL originally, they sidestepped the uh, CO2 emission issue by saying that, well, if they don't do Keystone, they will do something else. It'll go to Asia or it will do whatever. 
the environmental lobby never bought that because I think they thought that they could stop all pipelines. So this is just phase two. Kill Keystone, kill Energy East, kill Kinder Morgan, and you have stopped oil sands production from growing. And I think that's what this is about. Uh, the other stuff is just a means to that end. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point, Bill. And then you heard Anthony even make the point about uh, increasing oil sands production. But I think, that to me, there are separate questions. It's about the, the production we have now. How are we going to move that? But there is also a question of, you know, how much do we want the oil sands to grow? And I think that's a conversation uh, that's happening right now in, in Alberta. But is it a, about a more concentrated approach, Cody, and just shutting down the oil sands altogether? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they would like to uh, block every pipeline, uh, limit growth, and ultimately shut down the oil sands. Absolutely. You know, there's many of these people that have been quoted as saying that, you know, shut down the tar sands. And if you go again and look at uh, this supposed carbon bomb, this was a quote, I believe, from James Hansen that's been repeated time and time and time again. The original quote, I believe, was taken out of context in uh, a a greater conversation or greater paragraph. But research in California has shown that if you look at uh, emissions per barrel, there's at least six countries and a dozen plus oil fields in the U.S. that produce more per barrel of emissions than Canada, than the oil sands. So... You know, I find it funny when the Northern Gateway announcement comes down and you've got these San Francisco and New York-based groups that may have satellite arms in Canada or not, but you have these 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 foreign south-of-the-border groups using a photo of the Alaskan pipeline yeah. to say two down, two to go. Two down, two to go. They've never opposed Alaskan oil exports on the West Coast. They don't oppose the, the, these pipeline projects that are happening all over the world. This is, again, an attack only on Canada. And in, in, in many ways, it's devoid. It's completely devoid of fact and context. All right. Well, we got to leave it there. It's uh, CanadaAction.ca. It's the website, right? Yes, and we have a new online store. So if you want to support what we're doing and you want to support a positive movement for a balanced conversation, CanadaAction.ca slash shop. Also, check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All right. Cody, thanks so much for coming in here today. Appreciate it. Always, this. Rob. Thanks, All man. right, there you go. Cody Battershill, founder of Canada Action. We're back with more right after this.